slash donate and help us out, okay? Because we've got, Lindsay is going to be an amazing, an amazing guest, and she has so much to tell us. So, Lindsay, let's just get right down to it. Can you give me your bio really quick? Because I have it here, but I think it'll just be quicker. You wrote two books. Well, let me, I'll, t- I'll start at the beginning. Start at the beginning, okay. Um, mm-hmm. I am a journalist and an author, and I've done a lot of wild stuff. Um, I'm the author of the book Bow Down, uh, Lessons from Dominatrixes on How to Get Everything You Want, um, which was a really fun book I wrote uh, that came out in January 2020. The paperback was out in uh, 2021. And uh, the things I love to write about and to talk about are uh, confidence, both in the bedroom and out of the bedroom, um, thriving in midlife. Um, I was a bit of a late bloomer when it came to figuring out what I wanted and um, just having conversations about taboo topics. That's what I love to do. Mm-hmm. And your background, you went to your she, guys, she's very, very well educated. She, she went to Brandeis <laughs> for journalism, right? Well, okay. So I went to Brandeis. It was a nice Jewish girl from Long Island. And I went to Brandeis for creative writing. I had a wonderful writing mentor there, um, the, the writer Steve McCauley, who is still my mentor now. Um, and then I I thought I, I went to uh, graduate school at NYU for journalism because I thought it would be probably a good idea to uh, be employed. Um, but um, so I worked in journalism. I kind of put my fiction writing stuff on hold so I could be more gainfully employed. And don't so be, I, oh, I was going to say, don't be shy. You have a lot of really good journalism credits. Tell us what they are. Yeah. So I started out in the world, you know, it, it was my dream in high school uh, to work at a women's magazine, as a lot of women of my generation did. So um, I started out as a fact checker, a job that doesn't quite exist anymore, unfortunately, at, uh, at Marie Claire. And then I did the same job at Redbook, and then I did the same job at Glamour. And then I um, I made a lot of really close friends at those places, but uh, women's magazines were not for me, um, which was my first kind of career shock. Um, why, why do you say that? I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but why for you? I, I just, the it was a very competitive environment. I didn't really fit in, which was a, a feeling I've always had in my career. I just didn't have the right sensibility. My sense of humor was too dark. I had sort of issues as a feminist with some of the mm-hmm. stuff they were covering. I felt that the art that um, it just wasn't. So some of know, the stereotypes might be true. Well, the women who worked at these places were so interesting and so smart. And Glamour magazine was such an interesting place to work at. Um, mm-hmm. I remember and things I took for granted, like at Glamour, they they sent us all to a big pro-choice march. In, um, oh, wow. That is cool. It was cool. And we went and a lot of the other people there, we wore our T-shirts there and people were really like, they just were really like happy to see us. Oh, there. yeah. You know, women's magazines were such a source of news back in the day. Like I learned about the Taliban from Marie Claire so they were talking about, you know, about you know, women and human rights, mm-hmm. you know, in women's magazines before but, the news was. But really you've had your work. It. I mean, I was talking about you've had your work published in a lot of I just was trying to list the publications where your work oh, has been published. So yes, yeah, so I've been published in in Glamour, Redbook, um, Refinery29, The New York Times, Market Watch, um, a lot of different play fast company, a lot of mm-hmm. different places. And you also really have a you have a lot of uh, credentials in finance as well. 
right? That was a funny thing. It turned out I'd never been really interested in personal finance or money. If anything, I had a fear of that stuff. Um, I, you know, as a lot of creative people do, um, there turned out to be a very unexpected niche um, and a need for people that could talk about money in a friendly, relatable, empathetic way. Mm -hmm. And I found this little home for myself working for these personal finance and investing startups. They just needed people that could talk, Mm -hmm. not like robots or Mm -hmm. give kind of finger wagging advice. You know, people, beginners are coming to the table with so much shame about their finances, mm-hmm. lack and, of knowledge. And it's just, it, it was really important mm-hmm. for, for have to, to, my philosophy was if I'm a creative writing major and I can learn this stuff, so can you. Mm-hmm. And people really appreciated ha- having that, um, mm-hmm. having that point of view. And you had a successful podcast for several years. I did. It was great. Um, it was called Spent. Um, and I interviewed interesting people and comedians about their, you know, about their, their philosophy on personal finance, a lot of their struggles on personal finance. One of my favorite comedians, uh, PD Diabru, um, who's one of the best hosts in New York, uh, talked about how he, um, was arrested for white collar crime and what he spent all the money on and what he learned. And it was just, you know, people's, people's, people's feelings about money, about scarcity and how they were raised and and how hard it is to keep it, what to spend it on, mm-hmm. um, was just so much more interesting than talking to the experts. Just, you know, I just wanted to know how real people just curious. You know, what like what what you know, what made you want to learn about managing money? I mean, it wasn't like something you studied, like what sparked your interest? Honestly, I I was hired at a, a personal finance startup. And I just, I'm a very, um, I'm a person who can jump into a situation and, and, and make myself fit in to suit the, to suit the mm-hmm. thing. So I quickly saw there was an opportunity to marry my love of comedy. And with this really interesting thing, I saw that there wasn't really any, any interesting money podcasts out there that really made you laugh and think and didn't make you feel bad. So it was the job plus the opportunity. Plus I wanted to do something funny. Mm-hmm. So do you learn like do you know more than did you did you have to study finance or did you just pick it up or how did you learn about finance i i picked it up you know my dad tried to teach me some stuff about money and suddenly the things he was trying to teach me over the years started to make sense ah i wasn't afraid to ask questions you know when Mm -hmm. you come to it was i was very lucky um when i went to go work at stash which is um an investing startup the people that work there were so nice and they just appreciated me coming to them as a beginner and saying, mm-hmm. how does this work? Can you explain this So you to really me? got, you really got it. That was like a pivotal educational experience for you. It was. And mm-hmm. just how it really showed that, mm-hmm. you know, all the stuff you watch on Jim Cramer and all the stuff, you mm-hmm. don't need to know all that. Mm-hmm. You just, it, the basics of investing are not hard to grasp. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's it's really a um, thing. It's it's something that women can access. I mean, this is what I, I get from you. It's something that women can access really easily, but are just sort of stereotypically made to believe that it's more complicated than it is. Am I right? Is that sort of so? It's really interesting. There's there's a um, it's a myth that women are less likely to invest. That women are too scared to invest. 
women want to go in, and this is a very general statement, women want to go in with the facts. Mm -hmm. They want to feel confident in their decision before they leap. Mm -hmm. And women are more likely to, to buy and hold, you know, buy, you know, not just sell during a panic. Mm -hmm. Women are more likely to listen to good advice and stick with it. So women take women take risks when they're ready and then they go all in. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So there was a day um when this when the market crashed um a thousand points. It was a flash crash. And I um I believe it was 2017 or 2018. And we they did a, a survey on they about I I asked them to do a gender breakdown of who um who listened to our advice and held on to their investment during a, this crazy thing and and who went panicked and sold and women were m- way more likely to hold hmm. the market went back up so i think that you know i just think that it's just all that stuff about women being too cautious being too scared it's not true they just need to know the facts they need to make sure that they feel confident yeah before and, they move in. and it sounds like a lot of the image of women not you know, being good in finance or whatever comes from society, actually, not from the actual truth of what women are doing, a lot of it. I mean, I think a lot of men are more out there visibly yes. yelling about their investments yeah. Yeah. and yelling about opportunities sure. and making it very competitive. Sure. And, you know, and women contribute to their 401ks. They open up IRAs, mm-hmm. you know, they they take an interest in personal stocks and things. And it, I just don't think that they're out there visibly shouting in this in this performative way. Can I ask you a personal question? Just curious. Sure. Do you own an apartment? I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, we bought I, our place in, in Queens, in Woodside, Queens. And um, that was, um, it was in, it was in 2000. And oh my goodness, it was, it was during the recession. Mm-hmm. I woke up in the middle of the night and I said, this is our last chance to ever afford yeah. A, a place to live in New York, and I just felt I just it was one of my great inspirations. And and, we, and what? How big is it? You and your husband have been married for how long? Oh my goodness, I think fourteen years. Fourteen years, and no kids, guys. So, no um, just tell me what it. Tell me how big it is. <laughs> it's a pretty big apartment. Okay, tell oh, me. We got really lucky. It's I guess it's about twelve hundred square feet. Shit. Um, okay. It was. Um. It's it's really nice. It's a nice high rise building and uh-huh. does it have an outdoor space? It's got a nice balcony. My husband likes to grow stuff on it. Uh-huh. Um, but when we bought it, people were like, "No one's ever going to visit you." Mm-hmm. Like you know, people just all my friends were all in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But I just, I just, you know, we just, you know, we had moved to Astoria, and it had been such a, a rescue for us yeah. because. We- come from Williamsburg where uh-huh. we had bed bugs. So we were just very, we have Stockholm syndrome for Queens. We're very. So um, are you like, that was the smartest thing I ever did or you know, one of them? Well, when we bought the place, you know, it had, it hadn't been renovated since 1972, like wow. or 74. So it had like carpet and wallpaper and like Jerry rigged, you know, fuses and stuff. So we had to, but it was what we could afford. We didn't have a big budget. I'm a mm-hmm. writer. My husband's a writer. Um, but we just got, we just saw it and we said, this is our last shot. And right. we just went in for it. And, and it, it went and for it was the, the size. Decision. Yeah. So we did, we didn't do the cool thing. We did the thing that worked for us. That's, um, that's great. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're lucky. So when guys, when we were talking, you know, right before you came on air, it sounds like your career was going in one place. And then you, as you, your own work, her own words, creative crisis. You had a creative, she's really good. And look, guys, this woman was going to be successful no matter what. I <laughs> promise you. 
But you had a um, creative crisis and you took a complete, you know, different path. And I wanted to understand that. I want us to understand that. So you can, can you describe where your life was a little bit before your creative crisis, what happened and where, where you, where it took you and what that was, what it felt like. So what happened with me was that, you know, I, I struggled with writing fiction and I committed to journalism and I had just, and I had never really been comfortable in a newsroom and I couldn't, but I committed to it. I committed to the bit. And then finally I had to make, I had in 2014, I just, I just said, I can't do this anymore. And it was a real crisis for me because it's all I had done. And I was 35 and I, and I just saw the future of journalism and I was correct that it was just rapidly unraveling and, and there wasn't, there wasn't going to be a place for me. So I just, I had to start again. Mm. at 35. Mm. And while I was trying to, you know, piece together a new career, I, I realized that I had really, you know, I hadn't really accomplished in my heart the things I'd wanted to accomplish. I hadn't been creative. I'd been, and the older I got, the more afraid I was to be creative, you know? Mm. And so, um, Wait, around can I that just time, ask you one question? I just wanted to, like, you were writing for women at some point, right? You were writing for women's publications. In the very beginning, but all those but magazines were, started to shudder. Like they right. are. Like, but was that creative? Was did that fulfill no. you? Did not fulfill you creatively? No. Okay. Like very like narrow assignments, or you had to write in a certain style. You have to write a certain style. Everything gets very cut down. Mm -hmm. It's just this. Wasn't you know, so. it's very. Mm -hmm. It's a very complicated thing. Um, mm -hmm. It's not. Um, it's very hard. You know, one of my old mentors from the Daily News, Joanna Malloy, said you have to really fight to write. So uh, you have to uh, pay a lot of dues and you and in the end, if you work in a newsroom, you get handed a lot of kind of meat and potato stuff to do. Right, right. And then I, when I worked at the, so I worked at the New York Daily News, which for a while was a really great place to work. Mm -hmm. I was writing a lot about reproductive health. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was the, I, there was a minute where I was really like writing stuff that was important. And then as these things happened, there was layoffs and I got mm -hmm. a new boss. Mm -hmm. He didn't really he just mm -hmm. wanted me to write about women in bikinis. Mm -hmm. And I just said, I just see where this is going. Right. You know, but it wasn't like the dream career for you. Anyway. It was, it I just didn't really fit in. It was uh -huh. like every other job. I didn't really fit in women's right. magazines. I didn't fit in in breaking news. And I had to really take stock of like who I was and just, and I was really beating myself up at the time. Like, you know, I'm a failure. I couldn't hack it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had to kind of start from the beginning at 35 mm -hmm. and figure out, and it was, it was grim, but I, um, but the thing that helped, um, which is that I started um, while I was rebuilding my career, I started and consulting, doing some things to help out startups just because I needed a writer. Um, I started doing stand up comedy at 36 wow. um, which is, um, kind of a wild thing to do. And yeah. I really committed to it. I didn't just like go to a few open mics. I really, for f a few years, I was really like go doing a lot of bar shows and I was, I was really into it. And I was just, you, I, I was so desperate to express myself as an oddball, as an older person, not like I didn't tell Tinder jokes. I had my own point of view on things. And I just had this really transcendental experience i mean i think i mean people who do comedy are pretty depressed but i was so depressed that comedy cheered me up <laughs> <laughs> well it must have felt like such a great creative outlet for the first time i just felt like i, I finally i had something to say just to write a joke and get a laugh it was like oh my god maybe my mm -hmm. ideas aren't till maybe i do have an original thought maybe there aren't people who are when you do journalism there's a million people who can you sorry when you do journalism you get the um 
you you feel like there's someone who could replace you at any moment. Like there's mm. a million people who want your job, could fill your job, who can mm. write better than you. And then when you, when I started doing comedy, I realized like, no, that, you know, you, you can have an individual, individual point of mm -hmm. view that most of the comedians were in their twenties, you know, and they were talking about, you know, dating and all mm -hmm. these, you know, you know, young people stuff. And, but there was a place and I got booked a lot, not because I was so fantastic, but because there, there's always people in an audience that are over like 35 who don't want to hear all the Tinder jokes. They wanted mm -hmm. a little bit more of an mm -hmm. adult in the room. So you found a place for yourself. You made a I place did. for yourself. And did that, I mean, that must've been like, was that really hard for you to get on stage? I mean, or were you, you know, you're, you're a co confident writer. I, I, by that point, I can't imagine you wouldn't be, so were you no, okay getting had, on stage? I had, or? I had no confidence in anything. I lost all my confidence. Uh, I think I felt I was 36. I had made the decision that I wasn't sure. Though I would made the decision. I didn't think I wanted to have kids. I just mm -hmm. said, I have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. oh. And so when, when you have nothing to lose and mm. you get up on stage and you, there's, I once bombed on stage. I'll never forget it for like eight minutes straight. Mm. I usually got a few laughs. And it was like the most <laughs> bonkers thing. Oh my and god! I just thought to myself, if I can get if I can get through that, like then I can really get through anything. Wow. And, and then I did another show like an hour later, and it all went fine. And you just get this idea of like nothing matters. Just keep moving. Right. Just have faith in your jokes, you right. know. Or, and which became the sort of metaphor for like have faith in yourself. Like you do have right. something to say. And sometimes the audience is drunk. Sometimes the audience is people who are twenty one. You know. Sometimes like there's no one there. <laughs> so that was really your life for a couple of years. Is that what you're saying? Like be being a comedian. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I mean, not for money, but no. every night I would during the day I would do some. I do freelance work. I do consulting, and every night I would either go to a mic or I'd go to do a bar show. Mm -hmm. I was really busy. I was very, um, I, I was really trying to sort myself out. Mm -hmm. I was and were, very, you, were you single then? No, I was married. So my poor husband oh, was like, wow. what is You happening? went through that with He's your like, husband. Was yeah, that helpful was, having your husband or what was that like? What was that like for him? I think he was, he was supportive, but baffled. You know? like, <laughs> That's he perfect. Just, I mean, I felt for him like he, having a partner like me who was just so unhappy and so dissatisfied and just so lost. And I had to go and find it in this place where he, he didn't really wasn't really interested in and he wasn't really sure. he's not a comedy live comedy person. So he didn't really couldn't really and didn't necessarily want. I think he went to see me a few times and it gave him so much anxiety that I don't think he ever wanted to do it again, which I can't blame him. So I think it was really, it was challenging for the mm -hmm. marriage and it was challenging for him because I was really like working through some really dark stuff and he wasn't really a part of it, but I didn't want him to be a part of it. Like sometimes in a marriage, you have to go off on your own and figure yourself out. Your partner can't solve your problems. Right. So you did that. Like, it wasn't like you had a cheerleader or something like that. You were on your own. Um, I was. Do you still he, do he, comedy? You know, I, I don't, um, I had to, I gave it up when I went to go work for this startup. I just was working too hard. And yeah. I, for a while I was really mourning it mm -hmm. um, and I really missed it, but I made the decision that like, I just want to have, but I didn't need to be on stage in the way that some people need sure. to be on stage. I, know what you I mean. just needed to have a funny life. Mm -hmm. And once I, I, re I came to that realization, then it was okay. So do you think when you talk about um, we're talking about your creative crisis and how you work through it, do you think like what what 
Do you think that comedy was sort of the impotence and then you got a lot out of that, that other th- it must have pushed other things through. You must have worked other things through that. Is that how it went? Yes. So um, what else? Comedy- ha- so you started with the comedy and then, then what happened? Did you, you must have changed your self image or. No, I was always, this, I mean, I, I've always looked the same. I've always dressed the same, you know, just, no, just. But I mean, you, your view of yourself in a way. I'm wondering. I just felt like or how you, to, okay, put, it must have uplifted you, I guess. Face, putting Sorry. yourself out there on Facebook in front of all your people you went to high school with and saying you're doing stand-up comedy is so mortifying. And But that was the first step into like not caring what other people mm-hmm. thought. Mm-hmm. Like, like when you're from a place of desperation, of like total emotional, mm-hmm. creative, and mm-hmm. career desperation, mm-hmm. then like it just doesn't matter. And once I did that, I was like, okay, like I am established as a person who just does whatever, who can just do crazy things. And mm. then I, these channels into the things I've always been interested. I've always been interested in just alternative lifestyle stuff, even though that's not me and what I do every day, you know, comedy is, 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 is not dissimilar from the world of, 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 of kink and sex. It's very mm-hmm. clicky and it's, mm-hmm. there's the, there's their its own rules and mm-hmm. there's, you know, philosophies on things. People are bossy and people are, you know, and I just had always been really interested in, mm-hmm. in you know, in in kink and just how people talked about it, how people cope with things, how people want to do things differently. Um, so it was kind of an easy transition in a strange way from comedy mm-hmm. to to jumping from the world of comedy to jumping into the world of kink. And so how did you wind up like getting involved in the world that you you wrote? the book you wrote and how did you wind up getting involved in that world and coming to write the book? Was it that, were you interested in dominatrixes first or the book or tell us about how you got that going? So it's when you look back, so I found a sketchbook from, I was at my house, my parents' house and I found a sketchbook and I was always drawing dominatrixes. I was drawing legs and fishnet stockings and I was always drawing like these like strong women I guess I must have seen some movies that like piqued my interest, maybe real sex on HBO, who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, the the book I had pitched was this idea of like, I always, you know, it was like how to feel more powerful at work and, and you know, and and, and you're with your money. I'm like, well, who, who do you want to ask? You want to ask a female CEO or you want to ask someone really interesting, ask somebody who really knows about power. So it was sort of like a little bit of a gimmick at first, but an excuse mm-hmm. to like talk to interesting people, which is the only reason to do journalism, <laughs> and, um, in my opinion. Um, so I just approached it from a journalistic perspective. I just started looking for people to interview. I started looking for events to go to. I just really went all in and I just showed up as a beginner but and, you didn't um, know anything about the world of dominatrixes before that. You, it just felt like you were going to, that was kind of like the crux of where money and power and what being. That was the conceit. The conceit yeah. was that's a place. And mm-hmm. then I ended up learning. I just, you know, there's nothing more wonderful than getting lost and being the least interesting person in the room. You know? <laughs> in that room. <laughs> yeah. And it was like that in comedy too, you know, mm-hmm. and I just, I, I mm-hmm. looked online, I found some doms who had been quoted in some articles, you know, mm-hmm. I felt like those people would be more likely to speak. Mm. I approached them with a lot of respect. A lot of these women, sex workers, doms, they do not get, they, they're not treated well in the media. Mm. So 
once I convince them that the book is going to be about their philosophy on power, it's not going to be an expose, it's not going to be trashy, then they were interested in talking Mm -hmm. to me. And then this one um, woman, um, she helped me with the introduction to the book. Her name is Simone Justice. She is a a very renowned dom. She ended up, um, she said I could use her name to gain entrance to a dominatrix convention Mm. where I was allowed to sit in on three days of workshops wow. and listen to doms talk about marketing and talk about SEO wow. and, talk about, and talk about their taxes and talk about health insurance and talk about all the stuff that really makes a career happen in that world. Wow. Also amazing workshops about wrestling and, you know, you know, and erotics. It was fascinating. Mm. It was the best. I felt so blessed to be there. Mm. I, I just, and this, every story that w- women told, and they were women of all shapes, sizes, queer people. It was mm-hmm. just like, it was, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was just the most enlightening, exciting place to be. And it just got my mind moving in so many directions. And then I followed up with them and a lot of them talked to me. So I really just pursued it very much like a journalist. Ah. I went to a lot of events. Mm-hmm. I, I held, I held floggers and whips in my hand to see how mm-hmm. I felt about it. You know, the way I felt about it was often not the way I thought I was going to feel mm. about it. So I just really, it became much more personal. Mm. And what what happens when you hold one of those things? You start to real. I mean, you feel powerful, but then you, for me, I went to this event and, you know, there were, there was a guy, a volunteer sub, and we were all going to stand online to like, you know, flog him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and everyone was doing it, they were into it. And then they gave me the flogger and I said, I don't really want to do this. I don't Mm. know this person. It's not turning me on. It's Mm. not doing anything for me. I don't feel powerful doing it. I felt Mm -hmm. powerful holding it. Mm -hmm. And I just said, and then I said, I'm going to pass. And nobody Mm. cared. They were like, great. And I realized like, you don't have to do the thing even when you're doing the thing. Right. And it's cool that you knew that and you were comfortable saying, that's awesome. So, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not been working on that book at the time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting, like I think it might have had to that you were motivated to do that book, which I'm guessing had something to do with your career in journalism up to that point. Is that correct? It, it did. I, my favorite part, it was two things. I, you know, journalism, the, the only good part of journalism from my perspective was getting to interview people. That was always my favorite part. Mm-hmm. So it was taking the best part of journalism, is doing research, reading all the books. But the other thing was I'd gotten some really interesting feedback from a coworker who said, she'd had a few drinks and she said to me, you were never a good advocate for your own ideas. Mm. And, and that just struck me as so true. And it was a life altering comment. She just said it very offhand, but it changed my life. Mm. It's like, well, why aren't I a good advocate for my own ideas? Why can't I say what I mean? Why can't I have faith in my ideas? So it was, it was, the book was sort of this, like, I'm turning 40, or I was 40. And I'm in the second half of my life. I feel it, you know, like, Mm -hmm. everything behind me is data and evidence and everything in front of me is, is open territory. Yeah, it's kind of like a really cool project that you s- used to develop your yourself, really. I mean, I don't yeah. you didn't actually, you know, like great instincts to lead you to doing that, great instincts and motivation together. So, um I'm I'm so curious to hear about like what you know, what what you learned. I mean, I know we ha- you know, <laughs> 
in five minutes. No, we don't have <laughs> an, we don't have enough time. But we we let, let did we say the title of the book? I know is by Simon and Schuster. It's um, called Bow Down Lessons from Dominatrixes on how to be a boss in life, love, and work. And I know it's um, all bookstores, Audible, stuff like that. Yep. Um, and it's gotten some really great reviews um, from some Sarah Cooper and some really, you know, I could sell it, guys. I mean, I'll <laughs> sell it. Let me sell it. But anyway, no, I mean, it's a cool book. So the thing is, is what I'm really, I know we can't talk about, you know, read the book. All right, guys, we're not going to get to everything, (laughs) but I am really curious about some of the big, big things that, you know, you learned and maybe were surprised about and maybe changed you. Did you have, did you, what you learned, did that change your behavior and your vision of yourself? It changed everything. It changed my entire life. Um, It, it, it made me think about why I'm why I'm afraid to ask for what I for what I want. Mm. Like, why am I afraid to like ask a doctor for a prescription? Like, what will the doctor think of me? Just ask. You know, it's you know, why do I think? Like, why am I thinking to myself this isn't a good idea? Just put the idea out there. You don't don't self sabotage with all this stuff that your gym teacher told you. This like, you know, this chorus of haters in your head. You know, just go out there and just 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 say it and do it and just think to yourself. You know men you know this is not a man bashing thing at all just like a lot of men just i which i see in startups and tech they just put ideas out there and they're not all good ideas and ideas fail Mm -hmm. but as long as you have the commitment to execute on your idea and have the confidence to say i want to do this this is how i'm going to do it Mm -hmm. this is what i'm going to do it by and just just do it like just you're already 80 Mm percent ahead of everybody else in the world i love that you mentioned your gym teacher were you bad at gym like i was oh my god okay yeah that's really bad that really you know uh, we could talk about that um but i'm curious what what kind of what did the dominatrix dominatrixes possess that like what did what what were they what what were their what were their take on life like how did they how did they operate that got you to understand that like what's different you know, about them so there it was two things so first of all you know dominatrixes you know i kind of call them erotic performance artists uh, you know like the best cool. ones yeah are just you know they're mm-hmm. just they're show women you know they know mm-hmm. how to just do the whole thing to create a scene and to just be you know just to use their talents, you know, to, you know, to, to, uh, to keep their, you know, build their client base, you know, they're businesswomen. Mm-hmm. So what they, so it was, it was less of what they do. Um, I did appreciate their attitude about, you know, asking for what you want and being, and being, you know, not aggressive, but being in control, the idea mm-hmm. of being in control versus being controlling. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, hearing their stories about how they got to where they are, the things they feel bad about. The one thing I remember, I spoke to this one dom, she was so wonderful. Um, Her name is goddess Samantha. Mm -hmm. She's more of a wrestling dom. She looks Mm -hmm. like a beauty queen. Mm -hmm. She's fabulous. And she said that, you know, her real name, um, I don't think I actually know her, her real exact name, but you know, she has an alter ego and her, and goddess Samantha is her alter ego. She's the one that does um, is strong and doesn't take any shit, you know, and, you know, and is just this mighty goddess. And then there's, you know, her real self, which she tries to like, she tries to 
one day there are you you want your compartmentalized selves to merge into one person you know you don't want to be you know i don't want to be goddess lindsay by night and like you know you know mild-mannered lindsay by day i want to be the same is that how they feel is that how the dominatrixes feel I mean, everyone is so different. Yeah, you know, when, people, I see. when people ask mm-hmm. me, you know, what are they like? You know, I, I you know, or how are they the same? You know, I always right. say things like, well, a lot of them really seem to, you know, like cats or a lot of them seem no, to have no. really good taste in music. And I try because everyone's coming at it from a different place. Right. And, and most of the doms that I interviewed, they, they're, they, they've been in it for a long time and they're, 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 they're in it for a career. People cycle in at, and out of, you know, you know, sex work and working as a dom a lot of comedians were doms for a while mm-hmm. a lot of editors i know a lawyer who was a dom mm-hmm. when she was in law school people cycle in and out you know because it's a way to make some money and pay bills on a flexible schedule mm. you know in a way that they feel comfortable with mm-hmm. um much like comedy people cycle mm-hmm. in and out you know very mm-hmm. few people are able to do it for a career or want to do it for a career mm-hmm. so so i think that i just found that they're i found that i thought they were very brave Mm-hmm. you know choosing a career where you are an outsider where you are um you're you are treated like a second class citizen for doing consensual work i thought was i think is disgraceful mm. and i think that um and just choosing to be live a life where you're discriminated against financially discriminated against mm. legally we don't have mm-hmm. legal protections i just was very much in in awe of them and the, but the people i chose were very independent women women who were acting as their own um they were their own boss they weren't right. working for a house they weren't working you know not all sex workers have that luxury of being able to you know to to work as an independent right. operator and control sure. their own destiny sure so i'm like this is what i'm thinking about i'm thinking about um there's a lot of different kinds of sex work and i'm thinking about you know women you know you wrote about you know women and men women the power dynamic between men and women and then i'm thinking about dominatrixes because that's a very specific um you know specific type of sex work where you are in you know uh, in charge of a man usually is it is it am i being naive is it hetero mostly no i i it's it's uh, you know kink is very queer you know it's 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 definitely very men with men you know for sure i mean you think about all the 70s leather stuff to me that's very male very hot very gay Mm -hmm. um but i think that the world that i sort of explored was more i guess a little more heteronormative Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering like those women feel powerful over the men that's what i'm assuming is that is that correct so I think that so exploring Can you explain that dynamics, to me. <laughs> sure. I don't so know I think anything. that <laughs> what, what what clients want is they want to subvert, you know, they want to explore a complete power paradigm shift. You know, there mm-hmm. is a stereotype that it's a, kind of true. You know that I mean um, that a lot of you know kind of powerful you know or just more alpha on the outside men want to seek this out for a certain kind of release you know a release of they don't want to be the ones making the decisions they don't mm-hmm. want to be you know taking a break from mm-hmm. you know carrying certain you know having to be the alpha you know and that's mm-hmm. you know so i think that that's very true you know mm-hmm. because honestly those are the men who can afford to pay these prices you know yeah, is, are, right. you know, yeah. i always yeah. joked you, you know you have to have um you got to be rich to be treated like <laughs> to be treated like dirt you know <laughs> the way you want but um 
But I think that was it. I think that they had a real lens into what, um, how performative a lot of alpha male culture is, how a lot of it is a burden and how men are not really as alpha as they seem, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is a show just like, mm -hmm. in my opinion, a lot of this alpha male stuff like succession and all the billions and all that stuff. It, to me, it's, it's, it's all, it's all drag to me. Everyone's mm -hmm. dressed a certain way to fit into a certain, you know, a, a certain way that, that they can feel, you know, perceived by other men as being successful, as being powerful. But, you know, there's men and women are complicated, you know. I love like, that you use the term drag because it is kind of a drag act, isn't it? Like they're acting more powerful than they feel. They're putting on. Um, even the clothing, a, you know, the yeah, police vest and yeah. and the haircuts you know yeah. people it's, it's like you can assume a certain thing and then form into, and then fall into a role but you can over time you know a lot of these for, i i mean i'm speaking very generally a lot of, of men you know they start to you know all this performing and all this trying and all this trying to impress others and trying to know the script of how to succeed mm -hmm. and it can it, some men need a break from it you know sure. it's just not easy to to pretend all the time so beginning to understand you understand all this pretty well i'm sure or it certainly sounds like it and so learning this being under understanding and internalizing it did that change the way that you viewed men did you become more maybe you know i don't want to well cynical is a negative way to put it but maybe compassionate or did you did you start to see men differently did you relate to men differently you know i think that it's a choice i think that you know i think that if you aren't happy with how you're I, I, not necessarily more compassionate to be honest it made me a little more like i i i a certain performative masculinity with a lot of skepticism now you know i don't see power where other people see power mm. you know I, when and I that's see it, new uh, news for you. Yeah, I, I just see it a lot more clearly. Like to me, you know, the idea of a powerful mm -hmm. guy is, you know, whatever, is, is someone mm -hmm. who's really, you know, is just free to be who he is, who doesn't care about masculinity mm -hmm. at all. You know, they're, they're, they'll garden, they'll mm -hmm. put on lipstick, whatever. Like a real, oh, this is so stupid, like a real man, whatever, doesn't <laughs> think about what other people think so much, you know? Right. And I, so I just, I have this other idea of what makes someone like, sexy or make someone powerful you know i think power is you know is there's empathy and there's uh -huh. like, like kind there's all these things that i i so i see when i see like an executive or something i i don't immediately think that they have the answers or that they're they've got some special magical ability definitely definitely not also when you write a book like this you know people reach out to you mm. and men reach out to you mm. uh, solicited and non mostly mm -hmm. non Mm -hmm. And um, there, there is there are more men out there who are more interested in having. I mean, who are afraid to, and want to, but want to talk more about how they want to explore these other aspects of themselves. How they they wish they ha were able to communicate their feelings, or they wish they were able to, you know, shed this hyper masculine, you know, mm -hmm. aspect of themselves, but. I think you know, something we talked about is that, you know, women are so lucky that we have friends, you know, we have intimate mm -hmm. friends that we can talk to about our mm -hmm. feelings and how we change and how you like one thing the next day and you don't like it five years later. I think a lot of men, I might pity them that they don't have these, pro these strong friendships and the ability to communicate how 
when they do feel like they've changed or something doesn't work for them anymore. Um, that's really, I, I, you know, I think that's terrible. So, um, it's like, are you, I mean, it sounds like, you know, I, it's kind of interesting because I think women, I mean, we all have, you know, we all problem women have, I'm talking heteronormative because that's what I am, but, um, that's my experience. But so, when, you know, I'll complain to my girlfriends about, you know, my guy and we work it out and we all got, you know, guys are generally, the, we don't, we all share those things. Do you think that men would like to bond over, like, I'm tired of being like the alpha in this relationship, but they don't want to talk to their wives, but they'd like to talk to other men about that? Is that what you? I think that, I mean, again, this is a very general statement. I think a lot of men, it's very... It's interesting. So there's, first of all, like an alpha in life, like, you know, like, I really can't handle this really stressful job, you know, but by giving up a stressful job, maybe you're giving up being a breadwinner, like people depend on, this is a very certain kind of person, you know, right, right. Um, you know, they, it, it, they might take pride on one hand, people are, it's always and statements, they might take pride in being like the man who brings in all the money, and they might be tired of it, you know, it's never mm -hmm. like they want to give something up. But I think a lot of men from what I've seen, you know, when they do have, you know, when things get to a midlife perspective, or they're unhappy, you know, if a, a guy were to say to his, his partner, you know, like, I want something different in bed. I'm tired of being in charge and I'm tired of this. A lot of women aren't so receptive either. Some women are so mm. happy to have any communication. They're like, great, we'll do anything you want as long mm. as things are different mm. or as long as I get what I want. But some people aren't receptive or, you know, it's, mm. it's very hard to, it's hard for people to realize that they've changed or that they're not the same person mm. they used to be. You have to have a lot of introspection and a lot of honesty with oneself, which is not easy. Yeah. I mean, I eviscerate myself every day. Yeah. I don't know if that's so healthy either. No, no well, you know, you know um, but, but they, the so it's kind of like they get, they've, they are in a role in life and it's hard to get out of it and they get rewarded for it, for being powerful and stuff like that. Right. I think so. I mean, it depends, you know, I mean, power is also fleeting, you know, you could be on top of the world and get laid off the next day. Then if you put all your, your stock into the, your job, then like, who are you really? And that's mm -hmm. very, very real. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy, you know, and women get stuck too. We all get stuck, you know, oh, I know. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, yes. <laughs> how many, you know, you know, women, you know, that was like the big 70s feminist novel narrative, you know, like mm -hmm. I was, I was supposed to be happy raising kids. And then I had these kids and I, I got I want to get out of here, you know, so we all get stuck. And mm -hmm. what happened to me was in my 30s, I was like, I need to do a complete reset. And, and, you know, for me, the reset, you know, was a little easier because I had chosen not to have children, which is, mm -hmm. um, which is just my personal choice. Mm -hmm. But um, it's very hard and I have a lot of empathy for people who want to make a big change in their life, whether mm. you're a man or a woman or mm -hmm. however you identify. Um, you get locked in, mm -hmm. whether you get locked into either emo emotionally or just, you know, career wise, you know, what have, you know, how can I start a new life? How can I start a new career? People mm -hmm. depend on me, you know, mm -hmm. what if what's out there is worse, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it takes a lot of, you know, it's motivations. It's a lot. It's hard. It's hard. So it sounds like, you know, your comedy sort of like opened a, a window, a door, whatever yeah. the metaphor is. And then you wrote this, you quit your job to write this book, right? You got the proposal approved. I mean, that's pretty fucking amazing, right? You got the proposal. Yeah, it was a pure charm. <laughs> well, 
I don't know. It's. I mean, you were on. It was something. a good idea. Yeah, it you were. You idea. were. But you personally were affected by something that you were aware of that you yes. wanted to change. So, um, was there anything else? What I'm trying to get to is like the rest of the transition and where you are now and how how it changed your path in life. Um, it's cool that your you and your husband have worked have been through this together because I bet your relationship with him has grown a lot. You both have grown. Like I'm guessing that what you did on your own helped both of you grow. Is that right? Yes, that is a hundred percent true because instead of like, we, we have an agreement, you know, I will never be a mind reader. I will never expect you to be a mind reader Mm -hmm. Do passive aggression. If I got something to say, I'm going to say it. And if he has something to say to me, he better say it. And mm-hmm. whether it's like, you know, I need to sleep at like, so this is a, a silly thing, but it's a meaningful thing. You know, we put a bedroom, um, so we, we put a bed in in my in the back in my, my office and mm-hmm. we want it to be a nice bed. So if somebody can't sleep, mm-hmm. if somebody needs to have the bed to themselves, like you can say like, I need the bed tonight. I, I, I don't feel well, or like, I need quiet tonight. Instead of saying, you know, instead of like wishing the other person would like, you know, just say, right. I need the bed tonight. And he's like, great, like take it you know or like i don't want to go to this i don't want to see this friend tonight you go great it's just be direct like you're not being mean by being direct you're telling them what's going to make your partner they're with the right person your partner's going to want to make you happier and going to want to like keep the marriage going so if you say like i really rather you go to this party without me i'll be so much happier when you come home if i don't have to be there Mm -hmm. that's good right and 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 that's been really great for us because we've been together for so long. Things can fall into these like horrible, like mm. passive aggressive, like resentment. And life is too short. Like mm. I can't with that anymore. Mm. So you found that it, it sounds like you you found that by learning how to express yourself and taking ownership of what you wanted, like just little things, even. It's all about the little things is all you can't do big things without the little things. One of the doms said, gave an example. She's like, just start small just by instead of saying um, like, like, oh, can I can, can I have a fear of restaurant? Oh, can I have another coffee to say I'll have a cup of coffee? It's mm. like you don't need to ask permission from like that's what they do. They're there to give you the coffee, you know. I mean, leave a tip, of course, because it's very queenly to leave a big tip. You know, that's mm-hmm. my opinion. If you want to feel like I feel like a queen, leave a big tip. But um, just say I'll have a cup of coffee instead of saying, "Oh, can I please have a cup of coffee?" Like, stop apologizing so much. Like, oh, do you mind if I like use this outlet? It's like just put your phone in the outlet. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Just think about these ways that mm-hmm. you just give your power away that are so useless and so mean. And you, and things we say is just a knee jerk thing because mm-hmm. we're so conditioned like not being able to take a compliment you don't have to say like you can think you look great but someone says oh you look great and you're like oh wait I, I, it's whatever i don't do that it took me i had a practice taking a compliment i, I had a practice Good saying, for you, though. saying i did now i just say thank you but i had to practice that mm, thank you wow and, then, and nobody cares just wow. say thank you and then move on you know and then now i love compliments i'm like give me more oh, good. <laughs> good um so what about, I'm wondering, um, I mean, it, you know, it's a, like you're, you made, you made a good choice or you and your husband sound like a really good match. I'm just going to say that you, you both know, of you very, had good instincts, made a good choice, lucky, call it what you want. But I'm well, wondering about the rest of the world. When you start, you change what happened. Did people, so you, I'm imagining that your behavior changed instead of being like, Oh, 
can I? You were like, I'd like this. Um, did that, did other people, did other people notice that? Did it make your life smoother? What happened in the rest of your life? You know, what's really funny is like my, your friends and the people who love you know you better than you think you do. And uh, none of my friends were really surprised that mm. they're like, you've always been like this. You, d- you just didn't know it. Mm. You know? So I don't think, you know, I, mm. my friends like, look at your career. And I thought my career was such a failure. Cause I didn't, you know, and mm-hmm. I just like my, none of my friends were really surprised because in mm. the end, when you look at your life in the macro, mm-hmm. I've always been interested in this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I've always done mm-hmm. stuff that's been a little wild, mm-hmm. but because it wasn't quote unquote successful, it didn't mm-hmm. count. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't, I I had some idea of what success was. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the end, the people that no one was really there were there was a little bit of like, oh Lindsay, you crazy gal, but nobody was shocked. Mm-hmm. You know, my so, parents were very were my my father. Um, you know, my parents were very worried about me when I was writing the book, but I told them I didn't lie. You know, my mother they were very worried about my safety. You know, sure. and I think when the book came out, you know, my dad has not read it, which I completely respect. Um, but he does check to see when it's taken out of the library. He likes to let me know when the book Aww. isn't available, which is very nice. Oh, that's but sweet. My mom read it. Um, she, I'm still in the will. And she <laughs> says, you, know, you know, being a woman from her generation, you know, there was a lot of people pleasing. There was a lot of kind of like shoving your feelings down. And she just, she said that she, you know, related to a lot of the anger that she and the resentment that she felt from feeling that she had to do that. So there's a lot of, so a lot of the feedback I get from the book is less about the sex stuff, which is so interesting because the book has some sex in it for sure, Mm -hmm. but it's about feeling powerful and being, you know, and being afraid of making decisions and doubting themselves. That's the feedback I've gotten the Mm -hmm. most from. So you, you know, you've, what I'm trying to say is I bet you've helped and inspired a lot of other people too, by putting it out there and in pretty, you know, plain language and not from the point of view from being a dominatrix from somebody who's curious about it because not all of us, we're all motivated. I think sex is a lot about, not about the actual sex, right? Do you think yeah. so? It's a lot about, do you think it's a lot about power? It seems, I've always kind of thought about that. Power. I think, mm-hmm, yeah. Ahead. I think power is in sex is, is beyond just like role playing. It's also like, you know, because you can be anyway, whether you're a sub person mm-hmm. or you're more dom yeah. in the end, like you have to feel like the confidence to say, I'm not enjoying this. or the confidence to say, like, let's stop or let's try this. You mm-hmm. know, you have to you have to be an advocate for yourself in mm-hmm. bed. You know, you can't just so many, you know, men and women go along with things they don't feel comfortable with because they don't want to displease the other person. They don't want to raise a ruckus. They don't want to, like, turn the other person or off. They feel like they'll fail, which is. Yeah. Or like, I don't want to, I don't, you know, if I could hear, you know, if the worst thing I ever hear women say is that I didn't want to make, or anybody, but women in particular, I didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Mm. And now when I hear that, I go insane. (laughs) And it's like, why of all the things to make a big deal out of like your body and your emotional health and your sexuality is the biggest thing to make a big deal out of. And it doesn't mean you have to, but then women go into such a place where they have to make excuses. Like, I'm sorry, I'm this way. I should, I know I shouldn't, I know it's stupid, but this, mm-hmm. and you just have to wipe all that away. You just have to say like, I'm just not comfortable. I thought I would like this right now, but I'm just not in the mood. Wow. And then by being direct and not being, not being mean about it, just by saying, you know, like, I'm not comfortable with this. I'd be more comfortable if we did this. It's such great feedback for your partner and it tests the middle of your partner. Because I do, most men, heterosexual men, whatever, they just want to know that they're doing it right. <laughs> and they just want to know, yeah. you know, and that's very, 
and they want to know that they're they're being a good partner and they want you to if you're happy they're okay you know and i think men are a lot of really kind of desperate for some direction <laughs> um and you know and, and that they're that they're being a good partner you know so i think that so a lot of women think that like oh i'm being i'm you know he thinks i'm good in bed because i do what he wants it's like well you know a woman that's if you're good in bed it's because you're doing what you want and you're getting pleasure out of it but no one teaches us that stuff that's i know i know what well, you're helping all about like you know penis vagina you know how to right. get don't get pregnant it's not about like who are you in bed mm-hmm. and how to say no but not no with like it doesn't have to be about like something dire like rape or assault just saying no like in a way like i don't know because i don't feel like doing this but i would do this it's like these mm-hmm. softer things that just make you more confident in bed like right. this one woman, this one woman i interviewed said that women are just afraid to say that that you know they're, they're not like physically like they don't have enough room on the bed or like their arm is sore or like you know their, their leg is asleep like everyone people people are afraid to advocate for wow. themselves in most minor ways so i think that's the thing is just saying like is this really such a big thing to ask? Wow. Like, am I really asking for the world by saying like, could we switch positions? That really, that really just makes life seem so much, just that basic concept makes life seem so much smoother and simpler. Yeah. So can you believe this, Lindsay? It went so fast. We only have two and a half minutes left. So I want to find out what's going on in your life now. And is there something we can talk about that people can like, are we promoting anything? What are you, I mean, I know you're, you have a, I know you're, you're very busy and you have a lot of work (laughs) and all that stuff, but I want people to know what's going on and if there's a way that you want them to follow you or whatever. So tell us. Yeah. Um, so I'm always promoting the book. The book is still out. People are still reading it. It's got a great audiobook reader. She's fabulous. So definitely check out the book. Um, I also have a day job. My day job is I work for a company called Stripes. It's a um, menopause and skincare company for women over 40. But um, the part of that job that I love is that I'm the editor of um, a online magazine called Adulted. Mm. which is a lifestyle magazine for women over 40. We talk about sex. We talk about mental health. We talk about adventure. We talk about music. Um, we just started in October, so it's still in baby phases. Oh, wow. So um, so, so you're like really the editor-in-chief of that, yes. I'm guessing? Yes. And you got to start the whole thing? I did. I, That's I, so um, exciting. I had a vision. So you know, it's like you start off and you're – the best thing about getting – there's a lot of great things about getting older. I'm a very big believer in <laughs> – People are so um, afraid to get older, but right with you, know, you honey. Mm-hmm. When you when you t- look back at your seventeen year old self and you, who is my guiding my guiding star, you know it was always my dream to start my own magazine, you know, and mm-hmm. then and then now I and just because I was disappointed in in that world, it doesn't. I still had that that tiny dream, and you know, there's nothing out there for women over forty that isn't depressing or isn't like I don't know. It just isn't trying to make no. you feel. Like, like old, you know, and like, like a has been, you know, well, and sounds, I, sorry, I was going to say, it sounds creatively satisfying, fine, right? It, like it, you've, it, you've it, actually made what you want. You actually manifested through a lot of hard work and transition, what you kind of wanted to do. No. Yeah. I, I have <laughs> it's a lot cool. of, it's been, it's, I have a lot of, um, if you, um, yeah, it's, it's called adulted, um, and you can, it's, it's not as easy to find as I wish it were. I'm going to um, put a link up. Oh you yeah. Know what, Lindsay, I don't want to cut you off, but I have to. And thank you so much today. This was sure. fascinating. And I feel like, I feel lighter. I feel like now I, it, it, it was really good. And I just, 
Thank you all for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. I'm here live.